Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Hi, welcome to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Starting here with the 2021 season, our first post-race podcast of the year. We're going to review the Daytona 500. And who better to have to talk about the Daytona 500 than our crew chief, NASCAR and NBC analyst, Steve Letarte. Steve, thanks for being here. Are you sure it was only one race? Because that Daytona <laughs> 500 felt like it was two races as long as it, it was on. No, Nate, I uh, appreciate you, you having me. It was a, a crazy race, a long race, the rain delay. Uh, it felt like a signature Daytona 500, to be honest, one that we're going to talk about for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, we were both there for the Rolex 24 last month. And uh, in terms of length of uh, duration of time, this Daytona 500 uh, was in the ballpark of a 24-hour race, it felt like. want to talk to you about that because uh, I know you've got experience with what winning a Daytona 500 is like after a rain delay. want to talk to you about pit strategy because obviously the race turned on that and you, I'm sure, have great insight on what happened there. But I want to start, Stevie, with... The final lap, Michael McDowell wins after the Team Penske teammates, Joey Logano, Brad Keselowski, collide while racing for the win. What did you see in that final lap? Because I feel like there's been a lot of debate over what happened there. You know, did Logano throw the block too late on Keselowski well, and that caused the contact? Or was it McDowell misjudging the push on Keselowski that got him off the front? What, what did you see there? Um, I saw two superstars trying to win the great American race. Um, and the fact that they wrecked as awful as it is for team Penske just uh, reminds me my love for NASCAR because they didn't look like two temp team Penske teammates to me going into turn three. Um, they look like two guys, two champions, two future hall of famers that know that that Harley J Earl is a, is a, you know, a monument piece. I mean, that's a piece that you, you put front and center in your trophy case. And that's what I love about NASCAR. And, there have been races, I won't lie, in the last five or seven years where, where that light's diminished at times because I see these team orders and I see these guys run. And I'm okay with team strategy, orders of a strategy to get yourself to the end of the race. That's what Team Penske should do. Roger Penske invests in three cars. He has every right to ask for that. Um, but I like to see a move to win the race. And I hate it ended up in an accident, but that's the first thing I saw. The second thing I saw is, you know, Denny Hamlin a year ago, did nothing. He let the run go by, side drafted, got in line, and had a chance and then ended up winning the Daytona 500. Now, listen, extenuating circumstances coming through the trial with Blaney and Newman and the accident. We can go back and live that all you want. But I have to ask myself, at what point do drivers change their signature, change their move? We see the Eric Almarola accident in the closing lap. We see now uh, you know, the Joey Logano accident. And, and I'm, not, I'm not a race car driver. I don't know the right way to do it. 
But at some point, when does the block not pay off? Because I don't think Brad made the wrong move, and I don't think Joey made the wrong block, and that's a wreck. And and people, you know, it's unfortunate when people say, "Well, how's that possible? They wrecked. Somebody had to be in the wrong." No, just racing. Like I'm not going to blame either of them. Um, the question I have moving forward is, is the block the right move? Mm -hmm. You know, if you are the leader and the run comes, are you better off to let them go and side draft them and hope you get a push? I'm not the right guy to ask. In six months, when this sting goes away a little bit, I may ask Joey Logano, uh, but I'm not going to do it for months because this was the great American race. He had a chance. But that's my thought. I thought, uh, look, it played out just like we thought. Uh, you know, I'm actually shocked it took the one to go, and I'm shocked that's when the wreck came. I thought the wreck was going to come with two or three to go, and we're going to see a green-white checker. So uh, the bigger surprise for me is it took all the way to that lap. I mean, you said it. It did kind of play out the way we thought. If you look at three of the last four Daytona 500s now, the leader has crashed pretty much in the same spot, <laughs> pretty much entering. Except for the one. What happened on the one, the guy who didn't block, and he ends up winning it back at the trial. And yeah. I don't think not blocking is, is the guarantee of winning it. But I think it guarantees you're not going to get run over if yeah. you just give them the lane. Um, but, hey, I'm not a race car driver. That's a pool we should take through the garage area. Uh, ask our race car driver analysts. It's easy for me to say on top of the pit box. I'd love to see what the guys, the the maybe my old driver, Dale Jr., he was pretty good at it. I mean, I'll start by asking his opinion. Well, I know you're not a team owner either, but if you're Roger Penske and you look at the outcome of that final lap, and oh, by the way, that crash also involved Austin Sindrick running a fourth car for Penske and Ryan Blaney had crashed earlier in the race. So Penske pretty much hit the quad payoff there of getting all four of their cars wrecked. If you're a team owner and you're Roger Penske, I know what you said, you want your drivers trying to win a great American race in the final lap, but when it plays out that way, do you think he says anything to Logano and Keselowski afterward? No. You know, Roger Penske has a room full of Indy 500 trophies. He's won, you name it, he's won it. I mean, he is he is an icon of American motorsport and motorsport worldwide. And, you know, if I know him, he'll have his own creative way of, of discussing this. But it won't be anytime soon. Maybe before you go back to Talladega and you start talking about drafting again, um, but I even think he believes in the honesty of, of motorsport, which means, yeah, we wrecked, but we were there. You know, he just seems like he's a guy that, that knows that that wreck is going to happen more often than it doesn't. Um, and he was excited to have a chance. And, and even as easy as it would be for him to be selfish and say, I wish you guys would just stay in line. We wouldn't the day 2500. I almost think he, he loves racing more than he loves winning. So, so, you know, there's a man who bought the Indianapolis most people bought the IndyCar series, right? Like, but you talk about racing. No, he owns an entire series. So because of that, I think he has this very unique view to see it from many different facets. And, and he should be disappointed. He had a chance to win the, the biggest race of the year, perhaps other than Phoenix, if you're in the championship hunt. Um, but I don't think he says anything. I think um, uh, maybe when we go to Talladega, he'll have a little chat about how we could do this differently. But um you know, this is part like this is what make, you know, as soon as they stay in line, as soon as Brad Keselowski doesn't try to win the great American race, is it still the great American race? I mean, that's the challenge I would make. Right. As soon as the, the, the first guy to the start finish line isn't so valuable to the guy running second that he's OK running second. Man, I'm going to have a hard time with that. Like that's yeah. that's that's not what we that's not what I watched. It's not what I waited out the rain to lay for made a cup of coffee at 1130 at night to set up the like. <laughs> Like, I, I don't wish a wreck on anyone. Right. But, but, you know, darn it, I'll be the first one to say bravo to everyone involved in that accident because there was no doubt heading down the backstretch that none of them had a plan other than get to the line first. And that's, yep. what I'm, that's what I tune in to see. Yeah, and we also tune in because we see these remarkable 
underdog winners in the Daytona 500. It always seems to produce these really compelling storylines. And this year, of course, it's the winner. As we mentioned, Michael McDowell, he comes in as a major underdog in the Powered by Points Bet Sportsbook odds. He was uh, plus 6,600. Someone bet $25 and made $1,650 off a $25 bet. That's how big an underdog Michael McDowell was, Stevie. But we've always talked about him being strong at Daytona and Talladega. He's finished fifth in the Daytona 500 previously. And it seemed like even though maybe you could quibble a little bit with the push of Keselowski, I don't know if he hit him as squarely as like maybe he would have won or Keselowski would have wanted it. It put him in position to win that race when Keselowski and Logano wrecked. He was in the position to have a chance to win that race for a long time. He just didn't show up. He didn't show up with three to go. He was there really um, the majority of the race, I'll say. I think the, the, the bookies in Vegas perhaps got this one a little wrong, the odds makers, because I'm not sure – he should have been a 65 or 70 to one underdog. You know, he was in my fantasy lineup. Uh, did I think he was going to win? No. But did I expect him to show up in the top 10 of the Daytona 500 again? I did. If he could avoid the wrecks, he's proven time and time again. Uh, now, it is his first career win. So maybe maybe the bookies know what they're doing, right? Maybe the odds makers understand what they have going on. But the 36-year-old, you know, came through. 358 starts, it took him. Uh, but he did it. He went to victory lane. Front row, three wins now for an organization that we perhaps forget about at times. We have, well, I think, a Pocono, maybe a Talladega, and a Daytona. So this is this is the second part of racing that we love. Is is you know, money doesn't it, it does help you go faster, but there are these moments in time where where money doesn't guarantee anything. And I can assure you, front row didn't spend as much to go with the thirty four cars. All the guys did that wrecked around them to be in in the biggest stock car race of the year. But the other thing I will say is while Micah McDowell's storyline may not carry from coast to coast like a Chase Elliott or an Austin Dillon, he is as good a person as they come. I've known him for a long time. This is a, this is a person that throughout his career got to a point where he was competing in vehicles that didn't have the financing, not to be fast, but to not even run the whole, the whole race. I mean, at one point he was in cars he went from fully funded Michael Waltrip Racing. We know the Texas crash, the spectacular crash. You know, that's in a very well-funded car. Moving through the you know, through his career to a car that didn't even run all the laps. He was running car. He was showing up, putting in the same effort, knowing he was there just to kind of check the box. So while the country may not see Michael McDowell as this landmark moment for the Daytona 500, you know, the little kid racer in me sees it. Right. Like every kid around the country that's at a go-kart track or, at, you know, I saw the Toyota spot with Bubba Wallace, which I thought was remarkably well done about he's kind of doing this for all the kids that have a dream. Well, I think, you know, while it wasn't Bubba Wallace in victory lane, Mac McDowell's kind of the same thing. Right. You're talking a, a road course racer who has continued to believe in his career and man, do it the right way. Just, a, you know, him, just a nice guy. Like I challenge somebody to find a guy that doesn't like Michael McNaughton. Now, listen, it's great to be mad at him on the racetrack. That's what racing is all about. But as far as a person goes, he's as good as they come. So um, I was happy. And we can't we can't overstate, you know, Drew Blickenster for now. This is the second one. So I was fortunate enough to win one as a crew chief. Drew now has two. Um, and people are going to overshadow, but Drew's two-tire call or no-tire call, you know, he put his position up there. He gave that 34 car a little bit of track position, and that's what it took. I'm glad you brought up Drew Blickenserver, Steve, because I wanted to talk strategy. And this race really turned on its head with about 30 laps to go, green flag pit stops. And I've been rubbing my hands in gleeful anticipation of getting to ask you about this because there's nobody better suited to understand how this played out and who can explain why it played out the way it did. So the Fords pitted with 30 to go, I think on 171. The Chevys pitted a lap later. 
The Toyota's pit on 174. So three laps after the Ford's pit, the Chevy, uh, the Toyota's come in. And at that point, that's only Denny Hamlin, who has controlled the race to this point, led 98 of 200 laps, most laps in the race, Kyle Busch and Bubba Wallace. But as Denny Hamlin said after the race, he, he said, we executed too well. They come out and, you know, he's ahead of Kyle Busch. He's ahead of Bubba Wallace. The Ford freight train catches them, goes by them. Denny Hamlin doesn't lead another lap in the race. Take us through how that pit strategy, how that how the, all of those decisions pretty much turn the race on its head and put the Fords in the driver's seat. So let's talk about the chess match first. All day long, green flag pit stops. We saw it in each stage, off turn two, the team that was pitting or the manufacturer that was pitting pulls to the bottom. We're coming. Don't run us over. We're coming. Still got 100 laps to go. 500-mile race. Enter turn three, come to pit road. Next wave does it. Next wave does it. We see that in stage one. We see that in stage two. Now fast forward to the final stage. There's no pulling over off turn two. Now everybody's holding their cards a little bit closer to their vest. Like, oh, I'm not even going to look at them. I'm not going to show my hand. Kevin Harvick drives into turn three like he's going to run the top like everybody else and rolls to the bottom and pulls the forts to the bottom. You can't react. I mean, Denny Hamlin can't pit out of his mirror. Like, what are you going to do? Turn left? You're going to get wrecked coming to pit road? Like, people want to believe it's, you know, the speed of the pit stop and getting on and off pit road. It is. All that matters. But that moment, turning into turn three, that concise communication to the Fords that other people couldn't pick up on the scanner, that split at the T in the road, that was it. Like, that was the moment. And then you're kind of reactionary at that point. Then I don't think Toyota has another chance other than to run long because, and I don't think it was the wrong decision, and Denny's not completely inaccurate. We said they operated too well. You know, I think they could have done a better job leaving pit road together, but it's just hard when you don't have the numbers. So, you know, you look at the Toyota contingent. I would imagine all year long, it's easy to say some of their success is their very finite and focused support from a manufacturer. They have less cars than both Ford and Chevrolet, and I think that helps them at 32 races a year. 32 races a year to have a huge manufacturer like Toyota focusing on just five cars now helps them. You know, the money goes further because it's divided by less people, you know, the bigger piece of the pie. But when you go to those other four, numbers matter especially when you start to see wrecks that have torn cars up and changed the, the dynamic. And, and I believe that even as great as that move was that Ford makes, if there are seven Toyotas, Denny Hamlin's the Daytona 500 champ because they roll back out there together. And even the Fords that are coming, they probably can side draft with them and keep the lane, you know. So pit stops are very difficult and, and you, you have to cycle through them correctly. I thought Denny did a great job. He just didn't have enough help. I will say I thought Denny, and I'm, an, I'm a big Denny Hamlin fan. I watched him closing laps at Darlington, one of the best drivers I've ever seen, win back-to-back Daytona 500s, right? Like, like talent-wise, he's, he's in an elite category. Uh, but I will be critical. I thought he got too greedy towards the end of that race when the Fords were coming. I thought there was a hole to get in in like fourth, fifth, sixth. And he made a move to get another spot, got hung out, and it took him all the way back to 11th. Does that make a difference? I don't know. But he went from 11th to 5th in the last lap. Could he have gone from 1st to 1st? You, you know, I, I don't right. know. Um, that's the only misstep I saw Denny Hamlin make really all day long. He was saying, Stevie, that he was surprised the Chevys didn't go earlier. That he kind of got stalled out around 11th or 12th. He worked his way up to about 8th with 5 or 6 laps to go. And then he thought, like, okay, 
I can make things happen here. As he put it, I'm in the energy zone. A Chevy will pull out, Chase will pull out, Austin Dillon will pull out. I can go with him and I can make something happen because I'm going for my third straight Daytona 500 win. Did you see that? Were you surprised the Chevys didn't go earlier and waited too long to the last lap? Shocked. And I actually think it comes down to a lap car. So if you watch the cars, I don't know who was in it. There was like a three or four car pack that was coming from behind, maybe six or seven seconds back. And how the energy works is the leaders are running the top at about 46 tens. And those guys are coming to like 45, 50s. Well, when they, much like a wave of water, when they catch that pack, they're going to drive energy through that front pack. But normally they catch that pack, they go to the bottom and the guy, three cars up, pull down, pull down, pull down. Now you have a two wide lane. As they catch the pack, as silly as this may sound, they catch a lap car. And I don't know who it is, but it forces them to run a lane higher, which now they can't, like, like they kind of got two things. I think it was McMurray leading the pack and he had his nose all smashed in. And the second thing is they caught the lap car where they just couldn't take the big dive to the bottom and, and drive two cars forward. And it almost stalled out what I think was the, the ice-breaking run. You know, they got there with like, I don't know, four or five to go. And I think that was going to be the run. They were going to drive the energy in. The energy was going to be felt. And Denny or some of the other Chevrolets would pull down and we'd have this race to the finish. That kind of, I think, changed it. And I'm with Denny Hamlin. I'm shocked that the sixth, fifth, sixth, seventh place car didn't try to do something at two to go. Obviously, they felt like they couldn't. Or, or didn't have enough opportunity because I think they all want to win the race. So they would have made the run, but nobody really took it. Going back to the green flag pit stop. So the other thing that I was surprised at is no one broke ranks. So the other thing I will tell you is as great as Kevin Harvick and those guys pitted, if I'm behind those Fords, oh, I'm coming with them, Nate. I don't <laughs> care who said what. I don't care what manufacturer told me when to come. I'm seeing, I know Denny Hamlin's fast, but I know how fewer Toyotas there are. Yeah. Well, man, I'm seeing Kevin Harvick, Joey Logano, Brad Kozlowski. If I'm any of those Chevrolets behind those Fords rolling down the backstretch and I see Harvick hang a left, boy, I'd be on the radio. Get on pet wall, boys. I'm coming with them. And, and as a crew chief, I would have been instructing my driver. I'm going to listen to me. We are going to pit with whoever the first wave is. If it's Denny Hamlin and the Toyotas, you come with them. If it's the Fords, you come with them. The first wave on pit road, if we're one of the back cars – you normally can pit and chase. So those guys have to kind of be a little conservative not to run each other over getting on pit road. If you're 10 car lengths back on the racetrack, that's huge. That's 10 positions. But you could sometimes chase those 10 car lengths getting on a pit road and roll in with them. So I would have pitted with them, and then I would have took gas only to make sure even if they took two tires, I would leave with them. And that would have been the strategy call I would have had to um, kind of employ there in the closing lap. Now, maybe my phone would have rang on Monday and there would have been a very <laughs> unhappy manufacturer somewhere in Detroit, but maybe that's why I'm better in the TV booth. I'm not Jim, really good following directions, Nate. So, uh, you know, I, I probably would have been that guy. Jim Campbell on line one. It wants to have a word with Yeah, yeah, I think that probably would have been a, yeah. <laughs> now, listen, if you win the race, Jim Campbell line one, congratulations, right? right, right <laughs> ranks and mess it up. Whoo, that's a yeah, thin, yeah. thin branch to walk out on. But you're right. I mean, as a crew chief, the, the way that race was unfolding, though, Stevie, like it almost, you, know, you said it like as a crew chief, you want to be pitting earlier. You don't want to be pitting later. So you knew it was kind of unfolding as like a single file, you know, around the top, not a lot of wrecks, already been the big wreck. I think you're right. Like, why wouldn't more teams, as, especially if you're a Toyota, and again, to go back to your point earlier, they're kind of boxed in already. They've only got three cars left. They only had five to start with. Why not do, essentially, you're having to do what the other guys want, even though you've dominated the race to that point with the number 11 Toyota of Denny Hamlin, but it's almost like you have to do it, right? Yes, but I will say, uh, play it five times over. And if those Toyotas leave on Denny Hamlin's bumper, are they a little better? 
Yeah. And they hold the Fords up more. If we have a reckless five to go and the, and the Toyotas miss it, do they look like geniuses? Like, you know what I've learned about racing is it's all, it's very easy in the TV booth to tell you what somebody did wrong. And it's even easier on Monday. I've been down into the whirlpool. I've been on top of the pit box trying to, you know, it's kind of like studying for your SATs. You can study all you want, but then at some point you have to sit down, they hand you a test and you only have a certain amount of time and you have to perform. And, you know, it's kind of like the SATs because guess what? There's not really a subject. We don't even know what's going to be on the test. Like it's not a chapter of a book like, hey, you better study everything from green frag probability to cycle time on two tires to, oh, who you're going to race against. Oh, but just remember all the big names that you normally race against are wrecked. So now you're racing against some guys that you don't maybe know their their tendencies. And oh, don't forget the 23 who had a loose wheel. He's kind of at the back of this pack a lap down. There are so many layers to this onion we're trying to un, you know peel away. All I know is Denny Hamlin ran long, left pit road. But man, he had a big gap, right? If he could have pulled his three teammates with him, would that have been enough? I, you know, I'd have to go back. I didn't look at pit cycle times. I didn't dissect it that much because there was so much other stuff to talk about. But it's um, it was uh, it was interesting thing. I mean, look, I asked myself if they don't throw the if the, if the wreck isn't bad enough for the yellow, because it was it was severe. It needed to yellow right away. I mean, it was catastrophic. You had the two up in the air. It was crazy. Who wins at the line? Like I, you know, I'm about a quarter mile to go. I, mean, I know McDowell mm -hmm. kind of had to run, but if you look at it, Danny's back there lurking and Chase is lurking and they're three wide. And, you know, there's a lot of craziness that can happen in the closing laps. Yeah, three car was in that mix as well. There was a lot of guys yeah. who maybe could have won. So like you said, Steve, I mean, you've had experience with this before, your time as a crew chief. You've also had experience winning the Daytona 500 after a really lengthy rain delay. This was, 2021 was very similar to when you won with Dale Jr. There was that six hour delay, which they essentially had Sunday uh, at Daytona. Again, the, the red flag came out at 3.28 p.m. Eastern. They didn't get back on track under green until close to 9.30 Eastern. What was that like, do you think, for all those teams there? And does it impact the flow of the race? Did it impact what we saw in the final 185 laps when they finally went back to green six hours later? So I think it did on Sunday because the accident happened before the delay. You know, you go to a speedway race and you know you're going to have a big wreck. But lap 14, yeah, I mean, that's like cold water on your face, right? You're like, oh, my goodness. Like, I kind of knew it was coming. But, man, this, this is like, this has changed dramatically. What we thought was going to happen has changed dramatically. And I think that's some of the style of racing you saw. I think you saw some pretty organized racing, some single file racing. I think what happens is when you take a 40-car field down to, we'll call it 30 maybe 26, 28 non-damaged cars. Um, then we had an oddball wreck with a flat tire with the 20, maybe had a flat lever, which take out two or three more. Now you have a very small field of cars. In that field of cars are some new teams, some smaller funded teams who have kind of done what they came to Daytona to do, which was, hey, we survived a couple of big ones. We're going to get paid pretty well, take that money, reinvest it, and try to have a better year. I mean, that's the, that's the business of racing. Congratulations. I think you, you do, you know, that takes a little energy out of the pack. You take a little, you know, everyone there is not, you know, they're not a, a pack of bees, right? Some guys are riding around a 10th going, oh man, we're 10th. This is great. We're just <laughs> like, hope nobody does anything silly. And some of the people that got taken out, like, you know, you look at Eric Amarola. Uh, you look, I think there was a lot of excitement around the 43. I mean, there were some names that Ryan Blaney that you just expect to be pushing some of the moves. And... I'm going to pick on Dale Jr. and Denny Hamlin. Shame on them. They're too good at leading. You know, they, they have this ability to control a race. And I don't mean that by leading it. It's, it's, it's different than leading it, right? It's, um, it's, it's, they have this aura about them, this confidence about them, the speed about them that kind of oozes back through the top five where they're all like, well, I'm going to follow him, and then that's enough. 
then it's kind of like crowdfunding mentality, right? Well, if you put your dollar in there, I'll put your dollar. Oh, you know, now it's now we got the GameStop thing all over again. Everybody believes in Denny Hamlin, so he just stays up front, right? Because because he has an oh, by the way, why should you believe him? Well, he's won the last two, three out of the last four. I, I mean, the guy's proven he can do it. So Dale Jr. had the same thing as his crew chief. I didn't get it. You know, we would be out there leading. I'm like, wow, everybody's just following us. I I can't explain it. You know, Daryl Waltrip has the vortex. Well, I have this speeding, you know, leading at Daytona. I can't explain it. I can't tell the fans why. Because I know in my heart of hearts, if second through 10th run the bottom, they go by the leader, but they don't run the bottom. I just don't know why it happens, but it happens. And I think to your point and your question, it goes all the way back to lap 14, huge accident. Then you sit around for six hours where everybody can look at time and a scoring and it starts to soak in. Every driver looks at, look at that guy's out of the race and this guy's out of the race, you know, and, and it, it does change it a little bit. A different kind of Daytona 500 with that six-hour break that changed things and, and made things feel a little bit weird. Generally a weird week, a speed week in Daytona from what, of course, NASCAR is accustomed to with the pandemic restrictions, with a different schedule, with uh, limited practice. You were in Daytona this week, so I just wanted to get your thoughts. You were there you know, up until race day. What was it like being around the Speedway this week? This, this uh, past week? So... I went to Daytona because that's what I do. I went to Daytona because I miss seeing cars on the racetrack because I'm a race fan. And it was the weirdest week I think I've ever been a part of. I wasn't allowed, not essential. It's not the NBC's half of the year. So I don't have access to the garage. I don't have access to the teams or the drivers. Um, I watched the 150s uh, from the grandstand side. It was fun. It was great. It was exciting. It's, you know, Daytona did a great job. I felt like it was organized. I knew where I could be, where I couldn't be and the things like that. But it was just a different feel. I was a pl- I was happy to see there were fans there. But I came home Sunday morning, as you said. I saw the weather, and I was like, yeah, I want to see this whole thing. And I'm afraid with some travel stuff, I might not be able to. So I came home and watched it from home. And it, it was a just a different feel. I wish it would have been a normal year so I could have seen what condensing the week felt like. You know, because we had the road course on Tuesday, qualifying on Wednesday, which the cars were impounded for Thursday, no on track on Friday. You know, it was a... It was a kind of a condensed week. I'm a fan of the condensed week. I actually think Daytona Speed Weeks still exists, and I'm turning into a big fan of the road course being the second race. I know it happened because of the pandemic and all the different reasons, but maybe one more thing that we've been delivered with a bow that we didn't expect to get is maybe Speed Weeks was a great idea, but you needed more than one marquee event. So maybe we should kick off Speed Weeks on like a Thursday, run the Daytona 500 on Sunday, and maybe we don't wait till the next Saturday. Maybe we like a Friday or a third. Maybe it is Friday. I don't know. You know, maybe we move the Xfinity series and all the openers after the 500. You know, maybe the Daytona 500 is the first race. You know, after you have the duels and the 500 cup cars on Sunday. And then maybe you do a Wednesday Xfinity series race and a Saturday, Sunday cup race on the road course. I don't know. But maybe you give those snowbirds up in New York a reason to come to Florida for 10 days. And it's not just for the great American race. Maybe we throw a road course in because... You know, if, if I didn't want to stay down there, you know, in just a few days, trucks and Xfinity will be on track at the road course. So I'm going to get some value out of my travel time. But uh, it was we- I, I'm still struggling. You know me. I'm a socialist. <laughs> no one loves to talk more than me. And I'm struggling not being able to walk through the garage with a coffee in my hand, seeing all the guys that I that I am fortunate enough to cover and I, I get to call friends. I, I, I'm struggling. Be, you know, I miss that face to face interaction. There's definitely a disconnect there, and it, it makes things difficult from the media perspective, certainly. But as you mentioned, that the road course added certainly a wrinkle to Speed Week at Daytona. I love your idea. I think the more times they can be on track, the better. You know, run the clash on the oval and then do an, another exhibition race on the road course. You know, why not? 
but talking about now looking at NASCAR returning next week to race again on the road course at Daytona National Speedway. Now you've got the surprise winner of the Daytona 500. Michael McDowell conceivably could make the playoffs front row motorsports. Give me the the 30,000 foot view, Stevie, on like where things stand after race one. I mean, I know it's early. There's 25 races to go in the regular season, but now you've got McDowell positioned to make the playoffs. You've got NASCAR heading back to Daytona for the road course race. That could be another X factor. Where do things stand? So I believe there are 10 teams that start the year saying we're going to win a race. Not we hope to, we're going to. Uh, now, I'm not saying they're guaranteed to. I mean, Kyle Busch barely didn't win one. You, you know, it happens to everybody. But you got to take your Chase Yelts, Kevin Harvick's, uh, Brad Kozlowski, Joey Logano. The list is very long of people that have a winning streak. And one of them maybe will fall short. But the majority are going to win a race. They're going to be in the playoffs. We have 9, 10, 11 winners. Now you put McDowell on that list. No offense to Mike McDowell in front row. Pretty confident no one had them as a, as a guaranteed win for this year. Right. Uh, but that's why you race. Because it doesn't matter what we think. It happens on the racetrack. I believe with the addition of all the road courses, we keep saying how great that is for Chase Elliott. Well, remember, for Michael McDowell to make the playoffs, he has to stay in the top 30 in points. Well, you couldn't have built a better season. Other than the dirt race at Bristol, which is a, a huge question mark for everybody, now Michael McDowell, a very talented road course racer, can go gobble up points at these road courses. That will help him stay in the top 30 in points. I mean, I believe you say, you know, it could happen. I would be shocked if Michael McDowell's not in the playoffs. I believe he has the ability. I don't believe we're going to see 16 winners what happens is, is last year we had a Jimmy Johnson on the outside looking in. I mean, look at those teams. Austin Dillon. Can he win a race? He did a year ago, but, you know, last year it was Cole Custer kind of won a race, wasn't in the top 15 in points, right? So, so the 12th to 18th placed group that will slowly identify themselves here in six or eight weeks, man, I do not wish to be one of those guys in August, right? Because you, you basically just took, you know, we're racing for 16 spots. Nope, we're racing for 15. And oh, by the way, the spot that was taken off the board was done by a first-time winner, was done by someone that nobody had in their brackets. And as the seats at the table fill up, you know, do I think it's going to affect Denny Hamlin, Kyle Busch, Chase Elliott? I don't. But the, where, where does that wave stop? Is it Ryan Blaney or does he win a race? No problem. Is it, you know, who are the, William Byron? Is it William Byron? Is it Alex Bowman? Is it, who isn't, going to be fortunate enough to go to victory lane in the first 25 or 26 races. And now they're points racing and there are less points seats at the table. So it was a real win. I mean, it, it, it's a shocking win. Yeah. I mean, I'll throw out another, I mean, Bubba Wallace would be another one. He, we had a chance to possibly win that race Sunday, unfortunately ends in a crash. And now maybe the pressure's on a little bit because not only do you have all these road courses coming up in the regular season, you've got the Bristol dirt race, it seems to me that this really sort of emphasized the fact that the playoffs this year really could be a little bit different in terms of the field because there are a lot more wild cards than maybe. So you have 16 races that don't involve dirt, a road course, or a super speedway. What you got left? 16. Yeah. Like, whoo, 26 turned into 16 pretty quick, right? Like, just like that. So Bubba Wallace, I, I heard his interview. I love his confidence. I know he says he's going to go out or hopes to go out. I'm not sure how he worded it and win multiple races. I'm not going to say he won't or he will. What I will say is the same thing I say to every athlete that tells me what he's going to do. Good luck, show me. And, and that's not root. Like, I, I, it's the same thing to Chase Elliott. He's a defending champ. Do I think he can win a race? But show me. You have to win. Yeah. You you when I interviewed Chase before the Rolex, what did he say? He goes, what I did last year doesn't matter. Like, they're not going to race me easier because I'm the champion. You know, and I love that approach. And I, I learned a lot from a much younger driver about how he approaches this. It doesn't surprise me. Him and Alan Gustafson are just grinders. They, they don't believe anything is owed to them. 
And I don't think Bubba Wallace feels that as well. I think he knows he has to go perform. But look, Sundays are hard. I, I say that all the time. The best quote I think I got last year, and I want to say it was Cole Custer, but I might be right. So nobody get on me if this is the wrong. I think it was Cole Custer. But I said, man, you're in the deep end of the pool this year. And he said, the deep end of the pool? In the deep end of the pool, I know which way to swim. He said, the cup series is like the ocean. You don't even know which way the shore is back there. Like He goes, these guys are so good. Like he goes, if you're in 10th or 15th or 20th or 25th or 30th, you know, you're not like waiting for a mistake. They're not going to make a mistake. Like they, everyone on Sunday is so good at what they do. There are more funded and less funded. Like I'm not going to say everyone's equal. So maybe you can run inside the top 30, no problem because of funding. But then when you get to about 25th, okay, let me write me and you. What's our joke every year? We didn't do it because of COVID. Let's go to the whiteboard. Nate, put your playoff <laughs> cards on the whiteboard. I'm pretty confident you didn't have Michael Bedell on there. So one of your guys is wrong, whoever you had on the whiteboard. That's how I look at this. We got that whiteboard right outside the studio here, by the way. So uh, maybe I should invite you back down. We can, even though we're one race in, I don't think it's too late to th throw 16 names up there. Now we have right. one locked in. Yeah, you'll get one freebie. One, <laughs> that's, that's, right. like that's like, you know, that's like, uh, what do they call that when you go to a casino? It's like a match play. You bet 25 and I'll give you 25, Nate. We're going to give you a quote free money so you can lose some more money. I love it. I always love having you on the podcast, Stevie. Uh, I wish we could do it in person. Uh, maybe we will at some point this year, but this is as good as it gets uh, in the meantime. Thanks again for being here. Man, I always love coming on. I love talking racing. I'm so thankful racing's back. I'm applauding NASCAR, the fan base, the teams. You know, this is a conversation I didn't think we were going to have nine, 10, 11 months after this pandemic has started. Um, but there was a lot of ways for things to not go right. But NASCAR, the teams, the sponsors, the TV partners, everybody has done what they needed to do to put on the Daytona 500. And it was spectacular and it was exciting. And it ended in a big crash and a surprise winner. And, and why should it not? And, and it just tells me that buckle up, man. 21 could be an exciting season. So uh, thanks for having me. Hopefully I have you more. Maybe at one of these days I can get you over to my podcast, but you're going to have to use smaller words. <laughs> on the location, it's like a two-syllable maximum. It's a deal, man. I'm there. All right. Perfect. Thanks. Our thanks again to NASCAR and NBC analyst Steve Letarte for joining us to recap the 63rd Daytona 500. As you heard Stevie mention, you can check out his podcast, Letarte on Location. There's an episode up already this year, a conversation he had with Cup Series champion Chase Elliott at the Rolex 24 at Daytona. And as you heard Stevie say, he's already lining up more guests to come this season, so stay tuned. Thanks as well to NBC Sports producers Aaron Feldstein and Emily Conboy, who helped with the recording of this podcast. As you can tell, we're still in the pandemic world of remote taping. Hopefully we can bring back the trusty headsets at some point. But in the meantime, I'm happy to do these over video conferencing platforms. And thanks to Aaron and Emily for making that happen with this episode. It's my hope to get back into the swing of doing the NASCAR and NBC podcast regularly after cup races this year. So stay tuned for more of these episodes. Also want to tell people that, as always, Dustin Long and Chris Estrada are putting out some fabulous content on NASCAR Talk at NBCSports.com NASCAR. You can check out last week's Friday Five. Dustin has a great story about the Champions Journal that is passed among the drivers who win the title each year. And also this week, on NASCAR Talk, we will have a series remembering the essence, legacy, and life of the iconic Dale Earnhardt, who died 20 years ago on February 18th. So be on the lookout for those Dale Earnhardt stories as well at NASCAR Talk, NBCSports.com, NASCAR. 
And on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube page, you can check out Splash and Go twice weekly. Our NASCAR and NBC analysts discuss the hot topics in racing. Up now is a video of Steve Letart, Dale Jarrett, and Jeff Burton breaking down the Daytona 500. And there'll be more to come this week with Kyle Petty and Parker Kligerman also in the mix. The NASCAR and NBC podcast is available wherever you download podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review to help spread the word. And any feedback you can send to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.